We're back for another week. It is Pet Chat. You've got Charlie in and also Cheryl Shaw. A big welcome to you today. Hello. It's and, lovely to be here. And Dr. Kimberly Earle, hello again to hello, you. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing well. Now, Cheryl, we're looking at the traveller coming up shortly, but not the traveller on their own, the traveller with company. That's right. A lot of people are now taking to the road, either buying motorhomes or caravans and taking their pets along with them. Hello, John. Are you there? Hello, Cheryl. Yes, it's lovely to have you on. I was thinking that it would be lovely for you to share your story about um, the decision that you made, which was very life-changing, from being in business, a very successful business person, and selling up everything and buying a motorhome. So tell me your story. Oh, well, it's not that exciting, but um, you get to the point in life where you're doing a few too many things and there's no John time, so um, you pull the pin on society in a fashion. And what... I, actually, um, I actually look after my elderly mother and have been for many years now. Uh, combine that with a, a catering business and there's not too many hours left in the day. So you but, sold uh, up everything and you got your mum and you've got two beautiful dogs, Toby and Millie. So you took them and what the next step was a motorhome and off you went. Yeah, well, that's what it is. And um, I originally got Millie and Toby to look after Grandma, so to speak, as babysitters. <laughs> and I'd come home from work and there, they, there they'd be, sitting there loyally at her bed and um, doing a great job. But at the end of the day, I wasn't around. I was either at work or um, having to uh, rush home and uh, look after Mum. Anyway, uh, I, I did pull the pin. I sold everything and uh, we've been on the road for 12 months now and it's absolutely fantastic. So travelling with dogs, can you tell us what sort of difficulties lay ahead when if somebody's thinking about doing this lifestyle change? What, what would be your advice of, um, of setting up and what would, you, what would you advise them to do to travel with their dogs? Well, it's always good to plan ahead and find dog-friendly parks, that style of thing. Um, and not everywhere is dog-friendly. But there's lots of free camping available. There's lots of caravan parks that um, um, have facilities for dogs. They've always got to be on a lead and you've always got to clean up after them. But um, it's uh, probably uh, in the grey nomad market, there'd be more people travelling with pets than without pets. Oh, that's and you find that in the free camping areas. Hmm. So you get to meet a lot of others doing the same thing as you that do have pets. Do they just have dogs or do they have cats as well? Uh, the majority the majority are dogs, but right. there's, there's cats, birds, fish, um, you name it. But okay. uh, the majority are, oh, man's best friend. And, um, yeah, life on the road, well, they've got me 24-7 now, so they're happy as Larry. And they're fantastic companions on the road. I mean, I can sit there and drive for 10 hours. Is there any special requirements that. that you need with having the dogs on board? I mean, your your setup is very large. Is there anything that you specially had to do to take the dogs with you? Well, you have to have them restrained, um, so you have a harness on them, and you can clip that into a, a seatbelt. Or there's anchor points, like for baby seats, that the harness can uh, go back to. But yeah, they've got to be restrained while driving, so they don't interfere with the, the driving process. Yep. And. Uh, once you get to your destination, put them on the lead and out you go. Yeah. Are there any problems that you face when you do reach your destination with the dogs? Do you sort of uh, make sure that they're always on leash or any problems that ever exist there? Well, depending on where you are, you're not going to um, run into fox baits, for instance, in the middle of Newcastle. But there's plenty of farmers and national park areas where you pull up at a rest stop and you could, um, for instance, open the door and let the dogs go out to have a toilet break and... Uh, on occasion, you um, 
be unlucky enough for them to pick up a 1080 bait. There's signs up showing this sort of thing, and they're usually only in farming areas and national parks. But whenever you see those signs, you just keep your dog on your lead and you don't let them out of your sight. Yeah, that's good advice. And it's responsible pet ownership at the end of the day, isn't it? Do your dogs enjoy the travel, John? Absolutely love it. It used (laughs) to be um, as a treat while I had the business. As soon as you pick up the keys, I think most dogs are like this. They know, oh, beauty, we're going out in the car. That means you're off to the beach or you're going for a walk or something. But um, as soon as the engine starts, they sit up in their seat, put the belts on, away they go. Absolutely love it. So how many kilometres have they travelled? We've done 32,000 kilometres now. Wow. They've uh, seen more of Australia than me. And me as well. (laughs) Uh, We've been up to Cooktown and right over to Perth and halfway up the West Australian coast. The Nullarbor a couple of times, but um, yeah, there's plenty to look at. And you're going to continue doing this for some time? I'm going to continue doing this indefinitely. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> it beats going to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very exciting. I guess the best of luck, John, to you and Millie and Toby. Toby yep. Millie and Toby, yep. Oh. And all the other travellers on the road. One of the hardest things I find is finding a, finding a good groomer when you're on the road. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that. you've managed to do that. You know what and, it's all about. And funnily enough, I was in Perth, get this, I go into a place called Posh Pooch, and I said, look, I normally get the dogs done at Dog Overboard at Newcastle. And they said, oh, Cheryl and David, yeah, we know them. Uh, look, uh, I mean, that's, that's 4,000 kilometres away. You're, you're famous. You're all over Australia. Oh, that's great. Well, there you go. But, it's, John, thank you so much for talking with us today. And um, safe travels, and we'll um, talk to you again maybe when you're in another part of Australia. It's really interesting and probably interesting for people that uh, want a holiday with their animals. You know, they might have their own little camper van and want to take the animals. So, Obviously, there are places that do accept pets. You've just got to plan ahead, as, as John yeah, said. that's mm-hmm. right. I've had a couple of friends who have done that lifestyle change and sold up and gone on into a caravan or a motorhome. Actually, one's just doing it next week. His house is gone and he's going away in a van. <gasps> and even for luck. short-term um, trips, there's lots of uh, – you can buy books on you know where to camp with your dog. You can go onto – there's Google websites and things that will tell you about um, caravan parks and different hotels and stuff that are dog-friendly yeah, friendly. places, which mm. is really good. Because we don't want them mm. to miss out, do we? No, yeah. no, don't want to leave them behind. Hello, it's Pet Chat. We've got Miles from Swansea on the line. Miles, how can Dr. Kimberly Earl help you today? Uh, good afternoon. I'm ringing to inquire. We have a little English staffy, and uh, every time I bath her, by the next day, say 24 hours, she has this terrible smell about her. Okay. There's, there's no way that she can roll in anything because we have all nice green lawns. Yeah. And I have tried everything. Okay. Does she have um? Does she have sort of staffy skin? Lots of staffies will will have some skin issues. And so, is she an itchy staffy and have red skin at all? No, no, no. Really. She doesn't okay. have any red skin. She doesn't have any marks on her, but no. just smell. Okay. So what what we can find is that some dogs will have an overgrowth of a yeast on their skin called malassezia, um, and that is something that's quite common uh, in our dog pets. Um, that if you bathe them and if they have an overgrowth of this, the bathing doesn't actually get rid of it. It comes back very quickly because it really likes the moisture on the skin, um, and it can cause them to be sort of smelly. They will usually have a um, sort of a classic sort of 
of greasy feel to the skin and to the fur as well, even if you've just recently bathed them. Um, the other thing we sometimes find is it can be coming from their ears. So we want to have a really good look down um, the ears of the dog and make sure that uh, she doesn't have any sort of signs of ear infection. So anything that's smelly in the ears, if the ears look red, if she's shaking her head at all. And then the other thing that can be happening from the other end is that dogs have a scent gland in the back end, um, an anal scent gland. And that sometimes, particularly if they've been excited, and we know lots of dogs after they have a bath, they run around the backyard like a hooligan, um, if they happen to release those those anal glands, that can actually sit on the outside of the skin and can cause some um, some smell for the owners as well. Lots of dogs will, will clean themselves up after it, but um, not always. So we certainly can get smells from a variety of different areas. Some dogs will object to some of the nice, you know, smelling shampoos that we put on them, and so they will make a concerted effort to try to find anything to go and roll in. <laughs> um, dead birds, dead rats, dead, you know, even a little bit of dog poo here and there. Um, <laughs> Um, it can be fairly challenging that way. So, you know, what we consider nice smelling is not necessarily what um, our, our dog friends consider nice smelling. So they will sometimes go and try to cover up that nice fresh scent that you've put on them as well. Is there anything I could try else to put on her? Because she has a beautiful coat. She has, yep. uh, she's not oily. Um, there's, uh, every time she does a business, it's always picked up straight away. Straight away. Um, yeah. It's got me beat. Yeah, it's um it's a bit of a hard one, and if she's not a, a typically ishy staffy, then um you're you're quite lucky for one. Um, you might just try a different shampoo and see if there's something that's not um agreeing well with the oils on her coat, something like that. I'm not sure, Cheryl. Have you got any suggestions? It probably is like you said in the first place with a little mm. bit of yeast there needing to be treated with a treatment shampoo. Mm. I'd be thinking so the yeah. Malaseb. Yeah, and certainly your your regular veterinarian can do a um what we we do what we call a tape impression. Um, where we have a look under a microscope with some stain to see if there's uh, malassezia on the skin. Um, sometimes you can get the smell without getting the greasy feel. Um, have a have a really good feel in her sort of groin area as well because those sort of less haired areas is often where it likes to sit right on the skin. So if you're concerned about it, then, you know, the thing to do is to get her into your um, regular veterinarian and have her skin checked out that way just to see. And there are lots of good um, medicated shampoos that you can apply and, um, and they'll help reduce the skin or the, the yeast on the skin. Okay, then. Thank okay. you very much for that. No worries. Thanks, Thank Miles. You. Some Bye. good advice there. 49216216. We're here to answer any of your pet questions. And this is a little bit exciting because coming up, you're going to have a chat to us, Kimberly, about pets that aren't as common, the reptiles. Yeah, so reptiles are becoming a much more frequent pet because they're not... Um, they don't have the same space requirements and activity requirements. So um, becoming much more common and we want to make sure that people have, um, you know, a bit of baseline information and that they start thinking outside the box about what they might want to have as a pet. Oh, we'll have a chat about that shortly. <laughs> it's Pet Chat and we are going to have a little look shortly at different sorts of animals for pets and Reptiles, apparently they're becoming more and more popular. So keep that in mind. If you've got a reptile, you might have a question for Kimberly. We can take your calls, 49216216. But I believe we've got Wayne on the line. Wayne from Lake Memora, you've got a cat that keeps pulling its hair out. I do, I do. Um, for some unknown reason, um, with the cat started pulling her hair out uh, across its back, down its lower back, um, we've taken it to the vet. Gave it, they gave it a cortisone injection. That didn't help. And then we had blood tests done, and that come up clear. Uh, so we don't know what's causing it. Though somebody has said maybe it's stress, but we don't know. Right. Okay. So you've so you've been into the vet. So that's the the 
very good sort of first place to start. Um, we can see pulling hair out or um, over grooming in cats um, for a number of different reasons. And so obviously your vet started to have a look into whether or not we've got some, um, usually it's allergic based skin disease there. Um, and often the, the anti-inflammatories or the steroid injections can make a big difference if they've got an allergic basis, but not always. Sometimes, um, sometimes they're um, it's not a perfect solution, that's for sure. But if that hasn't helped, um, then I guess, and we've ruled out all the other medical causes, the easy medical causes, then I guess I would start looking at a behavioral anxiety sort of related thing. Is it is it the only cat you have? Yes, it is. And do you see um, do you see the cat pulling its hair out? Yes, we do. Yeah, and is she actually pulling, he or she pulling clumps of hair out or is she just grooming, grooming, grooming? No, she's pulling clumps of hair out and we, 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 we say to tell her to stop and she does stop. Okay. But then she'll do it a little bit later on. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. Uh, okay. She's, she's an indoor cat. Yep. Um, How... And she's always been that way. How old is your uh, cat? Uh, she's about uh, two years old. Oh, so she's young. Okay. Oh, interesting. So, Wayne, the things that I would be keeping in mind certainly could be um, anxiety-related. We we do see that in cats. Um, it can manifest itself in a number of different ways, sometimes um, over-grooming, barbering, um, pulling hair out. The other thing to keep in mind is that perhaps there's something happening that's causing your cat pain, and she's taking it out on that sort of back um, area. So I would always be, uh, you know, maybe looking for some cause of spinal pain, um, and maybe we need to go back to the to the vet and sort of say, you know, maybe we should be taking some X-rays. Um, sadly, some of these things are hard to see on X-ray, and we we certainly have the option of looking at advanced medical imaging like CTs and things that can be a little bit more um, helpful. Uh, I, I think trialing some um, there's some good uh, evidence for for some. Um, anti-anxiety medications in some of these guys if we've ruled out the, the really easy things and you might look at doing a trial in conjunction with your veterinarian look at doing a trial of something like that it's never a quick thing because they usually take about three to five weeks before they actually start to work in the animal and it depends right. on the um, on the demeanor of your cat whether or not she's going to be tolerant of um, having some of these things either administered orally but there are some some good transdermals um, that you can use where you put them on the skin and they're absorbed that way as well uh, and so you know you might look at um, giving a trial of that to see if it can help. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Most of the most of the problems we see like that are related to skin, you know, disease and allergies. But you've you've already addressed some of that with your vet. You can always look at a specialist consult. There we have local specialists and specialists in Sydney. Um, and some cats certainly do require a bit more in depth um, workup for those sorts of things. Okay. All okay. Right. I'll give all that a try. Thank you very much for your help. You're very welcome, Wayne. Four nine two one six two one six. If you've got any questions today for our vet, Dr. Kimberly Earl. Now we are looking at reptiles as pets. Yeah, I still get excited by snakes and no. you know all sorts of reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl, Cheryl's here squirming, but I think they're pretty cool. I don't think I could yeah. feed them live. <laughs> Or, or dead rats and mice, though. That's the only well, you're problem. not allowed to feed live, so that's a good start. So, Lucky I don't own a snake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not for everybody, absolutely. You know, there are certainly people who have... Um, fears and phobias about these sorts of things maybe people who just don't you know like the idea of it um a lot of people come around you know it's not something that everybody's had an experience to be able to touch and feel and hold a reptile or a snake um now obviously snakes are reptiles but so we're talking lizards versus versus snakes and lots of people do come around if they're given that you know sort of opportunity in a controlled sort of situation but again it's not for everybody but the reason we want to start thinking about these guys as pets is because um you know more and more we're living in an urban environment not everybody has um 
um, you know, a big backyard to have mm. a dog running around in or uh, um, not a lot of places or lots of places still don't allow cats. You know, if you're if you're not owning your own home can be a bit challenging that way. Um, and so reptiles are often a, a good sort of substitute. Um, they're not as noisy as birds. Um, they they're maybe not as interactive as some of our other pets, but it sometimes doesn't matter because they're fascinating to watch and to observe. Uh, and because they don't have um, big exercise requirements in most cases, it means that lots of people who are very busy, who have very busy lifestyles, can still have the enjoyment of having a pet and looking after something. Maybe teaching your kids about looking after you know an animal without having to worry about the the sort of involvement that's going to be um, required of a dog or a cat. They do have some very particular particular requirements though and it's really important that we get this stuff right because when we're dealing with our um, reptile patients from a medical standpoint almost all not all but almost all the problems that we see in them come from lapses in the husbandry so they are um, quite particular and if you can get the husbandry right you are almost always going to have a really healthy animal but if we miss out or shortcut the the husbandry requirements then um, that's when we're going to end up with some problems so if we're thinking about um particularly with snakes and and lizards, um, really important we have a suitable cage for them. Mm -hmm. That's often going to be something that's wood, um, you know, a wood basis with often glass on one or two or three or four sides. Um, Obviously, in in our climate here, um, we're pretty warm in summer, but fairly cool in winter, and that can be an issue. And so trying to have something that's moderately insulated can be quite good. So, you know, maybe just glass on the front rather than all three sides can be helpful. Can you get certain lighting as well? Absolutely, yeah. Heat heat lamps and um, globes. Some of them produce light. Some of them don't produce light. They're sort of ceramic globes. Um, And that's the real key thing is making sure you have an appropriate, um, you know, heat source for these guys. Um, Snakes like to have top-down heat, um, particularly if they're big. When they're little, a heat pad underneath can be quite effective. But for the most part, once you've got a slightly bigger snake, they need to have top-down heat. So you need to have something coming from the um, the top of the cage going yep. down. Um, we need to have a heat gradient. So we need to give them some choice, you know, a, a hotter end and a cooler end. And it can be in wintertime. We do have people who really struggle to keep their um, enclosures high enough. We can, sometimes it means they have to get a, um, a stronger bulb have to put some insulation around the cage, have to, um, you know, make the cage a bit smaller so that the, the reptile doesn't have the option to go too far away from the heat. Um, really important that we think differently about um, thermometers from thermostats. A lot of our heat sources will have a thermostat on them, so you might set it to, say, 35 degrees, but that doesn't actually mean that that's the temperature it will reach. Okay. Um, so it's really important to have a separate um, independent thermometer that's re- reaching and measuring the actual temperature that you're reaching so that we can meet those requirements. Um, with lizards, they need to have UV light source as well, so they actually need, require in their body to have UVB radiation. Snakes don't have that as a, um, as a definite requirement, um, but lizards definitely do. So we need to make sure that that um, is going on. And they can be a bit tricky. We need to replace them every four to six months. Even if they're still producing light, the UV levels tend to fall. So it's really important that we're replacing that. Um, I always counsel people not to go for the little tiny, really itty bitty baby cute reptiles because they can be really hard to keep alive. They're mm. much more... Um, uh, sporadic in terms of their you know health so sometimes you get when it looks really good but within a couple of weeks you can't get it to eat and it starts to get skinny um, so particularly if you're a first-time reptile owner it's best to get something a little bit more robust that's already eating you know pretty well 
Um, the the little littlest ones, you know, they're they're just not as good in terms of staying stable if you haven't got your husbandry right. And so um, I would always go for something a little bit more robust, not the teeny tiny, you know, little penny turtles and things like that. So Kimberly, yeah. I don't know much about this, but do you yeah. need a license to get snakes? And Absolutely. That sort of thing? Yeah. At the moment, it, um, you do need to have a license, so you can approach um, New South Wales Parks and Wildlife about it. I think they have a new name now, which is the um, Office of Environment and Heritage. Um, you can get yourself a reptile keeper's license from them and there's varying levels depending on your skill level so they're not going to give you a license if you've never owned a reptile before they're not going to give you a, a venomous snake license so Fair you start enough. with the, <laughs> you start with the easy things and work your way up um, but I think you can get licenses for um, you know sort of for teenagers like you don't have to be an adult necessarily so it's good for some people who want to give their um, you know sort of older kids a, an introduction into um, a pet owning you know sort of situation still enough responsibility that they have to you know look after them not necessarily on a daily basis but quite often on a, you know every second daily basis or a few times a week yeah um and so it can be really you know sort of good that way I think yeah. it's really interesting and I actually saw on a, a buy a buy sell or swap the other day a lady yeah. had lost her python yeah I don't know oh. how she lost but it was huge <laughs> and all of her neighbors because she sort of put roughly the area they're all yeah. going oh my god I hope it doesn't turn up in my backyard <laughs> No, but, right. Yeah, she had a beautiful python, which mm. she clearly adored. But yeah. um, for some reason, it had escaped. It was mm. on the loose. It, it does happen um, from time to time, particularly with snakes. As they get a bit bigger, they can be very strong and powerful. And all it takes is somebody to miss, you know, the latch on the lid a little yes. bit and they can yep. get out. Um, luckily, in Australia, we're really only allowed to have um, native species. So we don't have to worry too much about, you know, them getting out and causing um, feral populations. But if you look at, you know, the south um, southeastern United States, they have a... Um, a raging population of Burmese pythons oh, um, in the Florida, Florida um, Everglades and things like that. And those things get to like 18 feet long. Oh, Another reason why we're grateful yeah. to be in Australia. <laughs> Australia has a lot of um, very scary poisonous snakes, but from we a do. python standpoint, um, they're all quite, you know, relatively speaking, pretty good and um, they don't get too big. So you're not likely to lose your child to one. <laughs> Thank goodness. Well, in most cases. And, and the thing yeah. that I would always say is, you know, if you do have um, a fairly big snake, it's, it's really important that their you know children aren't left unattended with that snake out because Absolutely. nobody wants to have that kind of an accident. So, and I guess you sort of nailed um, it at the start. It is it is an area that you need to have researched and you need to yeah. know your stuff. In fact, yeah. if anyone does own any reptiles, would be really interested mm. to hear from you today. Four nine two one six two one six. I would be because it's something <laughs> I've always loved. I think it would be really cool. But yeah, you need to know your stuff and you need to. Be set Do a bit up, of I work, guess. yeah. And I think the thing that some people don't don't realize is we still recommend, from a veterinary standpoint, we still recommend wellness checks for these guys, even when they're healthy. So popping them into a um, a vet who's familiar with the species, um, you know, once a year, just to sort of have a look and say, you know, is there anything subtle that I'm that I haven't noticed? Um, quite often, these guys will get sick coming out of winter. So a lot of reptiles, they don't strictly speaking hibernate, but they brumate or they go quite quiet. Um, a lot of reptile keepers will um, sometimes inadvertently let the temperatures get a bit too low. Mm-hmm. And as those uh, snakes and lizards come out of their brumation, um, that's when problems can manifest. So it's a good time of year to um, you know, get your pet into a, a local veterinarian who's used to looking at them and see if there's anything going on. I was going to ask that before, Kimberly. You just reminded me, du- you know, during the winter when they are sort of hibernating or yeah. brumating, yeah. as you said, uh, should we not be handling them as often? Should we be letting them sleep? Rest a bit, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of them will um, not stop eating necessarily, um, but they'll often, you know, sort of go off food. They they lose their appetite for a while. Um, definitely worthwhile leaving those guys alone and not, you know, bothering them too much. Um, a common mistake that people make is they sort of say, oh, it's winter, it's cold outside, I'll just turn all the heat off. But it's actually, that's one of the worst things you can do. In a, in a natural situation, these guys will go and bury themselves in um, leaf litter and, and, you know, they're often a little bit underground or they're in a hollow. Uh, and the leaf litter is fermenting and it's creating its own heat. And so although, you know, the air temperature might only be sort of eight, nine degrees outside, um, those snakes and, and lizards are keeping themselves quite warm. And so um, in our captive environment, if you turn the heat off, then they're going to be cold. And mm. that's often where we have some major problems. So um, we would always say that, uh, you know, to keep your temperatures even, even, even if your, you know, reptile has gone into a sort of a brumation mode, don't turn the heat off, just let them go. Okay. Yeah, into the normal temperature. We're going to have a quick break, and when we come back, we'll chat to Mick. He doesn't have a reptile, but he's got a really big bull mastiff, 70 <laughs> kilos. It's amazing. Oh, my God, Father. Mm. We'll <laughs> chat to Mick next. <laughs> so we've got Mick from Fennel Bay. Wow, you've got a big old pooch. Yeah, he's too big, but he's only three and a half. Three and a half, so, and he's 70 kilos, a bull mastiff. Oh, he should be fully grown by now, so hopefully he's not getting any bigger. What can I help you with today, Mick? Uh, he's becoming, uh, he's changed from a really gentle dog. Uh, now he's becoming a bit overprotective and aggressive yep. and trying to force the alpha male thing on a few people he shouldn't be. Right, on the people, is it? Yeah, well, to the extent that um, we're not real sure what happened about a month ago, but 3 o'clock in the morning he bit my teenage son right through the hand. Oh, okay. Jeez. Um, yep, that's a concern for sure. Yeah. yeah, well, the dog had got in the house and he was in my son's bed and... You know, the teenager's gone, we'll get out of the bed, and the dog's gone, well, I'm not getting out of your bed. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, okay. So is he is he um, castrated? Yes. He is, okay. So, I mean, it, it's a serious thing when you've got a dog who's that big, and I guess the thing that I would always recommend is that you enlist the help of a... Um, ideally a veterinary behaviorist, um, somebody who can come in and have a look at what the dog's doing in his own um, environment so we can sort of see if we can work out what the triggers and things like that are. Um, It may be that there's some, um, even though he's a huge dog, you know, maybe that there's some issues in terms of um, anxiety or OCD or some, you know, some real um, organic issues there going on for him that pharmacologically help will be required for it may be a training issue it may be that we just need to um, handle him a little bit differently but we really can't afford in a dog who's that big um, you know to sort of muck around with it and and sort of um, rest on our laurels and say oh well it's hopefully not going to happen once and obviously you're not because you've called in looking for some advice yeah. so so the first thing I would do is go and get him um, checked out have a really good health exam done because sometimes you'll get behavior changes if there's subtle things going on he's only three so there shouldn't be anything but sometimes there is have your vet check out for any signs of um, pain discomfort any of those you know sorts of things um, well we, we have noticed that the struggles to get up yeah. if he's been lying down for a fair while. Yeah, so, you know, it, it might be that... Yeah, hips. He might have some hip dysplasia, something like that. And so that's always the very first place to start. Go and get a, a really good health check done on him. It might require some x-rays being done. Um, but we want to make sure that there's nothing that's causing him pain, that he's just saying, listen, this bed's easier for me to get into. It's nice and warm and comfy, which makes my joints feel better. There's no way I'm getting out because it's getting colder and I don't want to you know, go sleep on the cold floor. You know, Some of those things can be helped. We, we got him his own lounge. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that's pretty wow. good. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's well, the first we place to start. The teenagers and the dog, our lounge got wrecked, so we got the doggy's own lounge. Yeah. So maybe he yeah. thinks he's too much of a human by the sounds of <laughs> well, it. maybe. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the first do. place to start. Um, go and have a really good, you know, sort of physical exam and, and you might need some x-rays, those sorts of things. Um, and then I think enlist the help of a dog um, a behaviorist and, and sort of see and working with um, behavioral modification plus or minus some drugs that might help um, with training um you know um well valium but we we don't tend to use valium um so much because it's such a short acting drug but there are things that we use prozac and and there's a few other things that take a little bit longer to get into the system but can often help um just to settle the brain so we can sort of help with learning we know that anxiety or having some of these problems um sort of real organic chemical problems in the brain can actually inhibit the dogs from learning and so um, we don't necessarily need to have them for the rest of their life on the medication but often we're looking at a 6 to 12 month period of time where we've got them on something just to help while we're working on our behaviour modification type things yeah okay good luck Mick Sounds like a bit of a challenge, but um, hopefully you're up to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> taking your calls on 49216216 and having a quick look at the weather. It's all thanks to our sponsors, Snap Freeze Air Conditioning. It's remaining cloudy this afternoon. We've got some light winds west to northwesterly, uh, and the temperature's remaining around the 20-degree mark, which it is at the moment. Tomorrow's going to be very similar. Uh, and Friday should be sunny, but the same thing, early to mid-20s, so quite nice weather. And let's have a quick look at our pet of the week i tell you what ladies and you can see her at 2nurfm.com i would totally get her if my <laughs> husband would divorce me if i got another <laughs> animal bindi is it bindi. bindi bindi is an eight-year-old female staffy cross but she just look at i mean look at her yeah, face she she's looks a cutie. beautiful she's, cute. she's a little chunky i was gonna i was just gonna she's say a little fat <laughs> she, she's sort of a bindi and a half she is a bindi and a half <laughs> oh look it's all right darling you'd fit in with us um she's a lovable refined lady she has good manners she walks well on the lead and she is currently in the care of a family with young children she's great with young children she is extremely well mannered but she is eight so she's probably thinking oh you know i could just retire to yeah. to a, a household without kids i don't know but she is great with them she's an only dog at the moment she is very quiet um you can probably tell by her size she likes <laughs> snoozing through the day and she rarely barks so that that's, that's a really bonus good. as yeah. well um yeah. if you would like more information as always please check her out on our website to nurfm.com or you could um, give Beck a call at 0484 If you need that number again, get in touch with us here at the station. All right, let's take a few more calls because we do have time. And I think we've got Rodney on the line. I haven't read this. What's going on, Rodney? How are you going? Yeah, really well, thanks. I think we're laughing at, at David. Is that who we're laughing at? Our, yeah. David's amazing. He he works and takes all your calls, but he's put no idea how to spell chihuahua. Don't worry, David. You're in good company. <laughs> we'll forgive him. Yeah. How can we help you, Rodney? Yeah. I, uh, I got a, um, a chihuahua. He would have been about eight weeks old. Yeah. Right. And um, I've had him now for about three, four weeks. Okay. And I've only just discovered that he's deaf. Okay. That's um, impressive. Now, now... Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious to find out yep. if he would have, been, she would have been born deaf. Potentially, 
being mm. such a young age. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, certainly, we can see um, deafness as a um, congenital problem, where their you know ear canals don't necessarily form, or some of the structures in the ears don't form very well yeah. um, in utero. Um, there's a few breeds that have a susceptibility towards deafness. I don't believe Chihuahuas are necessarily one of them, but they can um, it can crop up spontaneously in any um, breed. Um, is she completely deaf? Do you think? She is. She is. She is. I, I can walk up behind her. I can yep. clap my hands very, very loud, and there's no re- no response. Okay. All right. So yeah. That's so how I, that's how I worked out that she was deaf. That she, she was deaf. A, yeah. She just was. Oh, look, by this time she should be listening. You know, coming to a name. Yeah. Yeah. And she's and, not. You know, and, and she's not, yeah. and, then, and then I thought, well, I'll try it, and sure enough, she was. Yeah. It's sad. It's sad to watch. Yeah, so some of them, um, I mean, they can get on pretty well without necessarily needing to hear. She's a chihuahua for one, so, you know, relatively yeah. small um, dog, so they're well, usually well, house pets anyway. We um, we got a vibrating collar, but that was no, no good to us. Yep. But she's reacting very, very well to hand signals. I was going to say hand signals. Often um, we find people, you know, stomping, yeah. stomping on the floor because they'll feel the vibrations yeah, yeah, quite yeah. frequently. We, 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 we stop if she's in the lounge room, and yeah. I wanted to come through the bedroom. I'll just bang on the floor, and she'll come running. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you know, like I yeah. said, she's she's a small breed dog, so she's likely to spend most of her time in the um, in the home anyway. So she's That's you know, right. from a safety standpoint, it shouldn't be a major issue. I think always be very cautious with her outside because she won't um, have the same awareness of the things going on around her. That's right. Um, she just she just does the bolt. She just runs. Yeah. And so, she hates being alone. Yeah. So okay. If she runs. I've got to disappear. Yeah. And then she'll she'll panic, and then she comes running home again. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 So I mean, training very, very insecure. Training will be a little bit more challenging for you with her, and you'll yeah. have to really rely on hand signals. But remember that a lot of these guys will, similar to to um, people, uh, if they have one sense that's not um, functioning very well, then often their other senses can um, sort of pick up a bit of the slack. So often they'll have a very good, yeah. you know, vision, very good sense of smell. Um, they can yeah. become, you know, really attentive. It's hard because she's still quite little. Um, so her cognitive development is still, you know, sort of in the early stages. So, you know, she's just learning about the world around her still. Oh, um, she's such a true lady, I yeah. tell you. <laughs> she is. Like, I could put her bowl down and, and, me, and me Maltesers bowl down for food. Yeah. And she will not eat until the Maltese is finished. Okay. I, I, you know, and she, she's just like that. She stands back for so much. One quick question. Yeah. No, one more. Sure. I have a eight-week-year-old Staffordshire. Yep. I have the Maltese and me Chihuahua, right? Yep. Now, because it's a pup, the Staffy, mm-hmm. how can I stop the Staffy eating all the food <laughs> on, on the other through the day? Yeah, it's typical Staffy sort of thing is that um, Staffies are often very, very hungry. So I would always say feed meals, not leave food out to graze. If they don't eat within a um, 15-minute time, pick up the, the bowl, um, give it back to them at the next meal, and, and they'll certainly learn to eat relatively quickly if you do that. And that's all we've got time for today for Pet Chat. That was nice and quick, wasn't it, to wrap up? <laughs> Try to get it out there as quick as we can. You did well. <laughs> Lovely having you in, ladies. Of course, we'll see you again next week. Cheryl, yes. Kimberly, we'll see you very soon. Yes, in a few weeks.